0: Good morning on this Friday, the 24th of June, 2022. I'm Carmen Laverge. Whew! Lots of international headlines um, this morning that I thought maybe we would round up. Um, because from a Christian worldview, it's not just things happening in our own homes or our own neighborhoods, our own cities, our own states, or even our own nation that matter. It is what is happening with believers all over the world. So a couple of what I would say um, are religious and religious liberty-related headlines from around the globe. First, um, I think it's notable. I mean, in fact, the article says so. I mean, this is from simpleflying.com, which, of course, you're probably not reading Simple Flying this morning. But if you were, then you would take note that Emirati's air has commenced daily flights between Dubai and Tel Aviv, Two years after Israel and most uh, UAE nations signed uh, the Abraham Accords. so you'll remember back in 2020 it was a big deal, really big deal. Um, and this is an an outcome of that really big deal. Um, and so I want to make note of that that uh, that an emirates air flight from dubai. Took off uh yesterday and very safely landed. First Boeing seven triple seven service connecting the two cities. There's uh three flights a day, I think. Um and um this is good news. It's good news. It's a it's a sign of tangible peace. It's not just a piece of paper. The Abraham Accords are really resulting in um tangible peace. And that's uh that's something to be celebrated. On another front, um, Russia is blocking um, Orthodox Christian content online from reaching the people of Russia. Um, Russia is blocking articles that are being posted by um, at least one man, Sergei Chapnin. But obviously, you know, if they're blocking things, they're blocking content Produced by one individual, they're likely blocking content by others. This one just happens to come to the fore because um, Sergey Chapman's uh, material is widely available and discussed among Orthodox Christians uh, around the world. And so, um, for his material to be censored and not available online, um, he he served um, at the Mos- at the Moscow uh, Patriarchate from 2009 to 2015. So he's well-known in the Russian church. He's also well-known in um, in Orthodox circles around the world, and his material is being blocked online in Russia. Um, in another uh, significant conversation going on at the intersection of religious freedom and, and, frankly, convenience, I'm going to describe it that way, consumeristic convenience, the Biden administration is facing what I would regard as a very critical test in terms of its willingness to confront the genocide of the Uyghur people in China, by China. So this week, the United States new law went into effect in relationship to the protection of the Uyghurs and other persecuted minorities um, in forced labor camps and in re-education camps in China. The, the law is called, the act is called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Um, Congress passed it and President Biden signed it last December and it bans imports of any products connected to forced labor practices in China's Northwest Zhejiang region. And um, the, the, the language of genocide has been used to describe what's happening there. Now Now comes the question. Now comes the question. Will we actually um, have the courage of our convictions in this matter? Will we live without the things? Will we pay more for things produced um, elsewhere? Will we um, set aside our conveniences in order to genuinely support the Uyghur people um, suffering so greatly under the Chinese regime? So... um Unless we think that living in a democracy is uh, is what guarantees the freedom of religion, um, people aren't free uh, under democracies around around the world. In fact, in the world's largest democracy, which is not the United States of America but India. Um, people of faith are not free. Lots of headlines related to religious persecution in India these days. So coming a little bit closer to home and talking about religious liberty uh, headlines here in the United States, Steve West is going to join us. Um, We're going to talk about stories from Washington, D.C., Maine, New York, Salt Lake City. He joins us from World News Group. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. of the Constitution in the United States of America applies to us as individuals. It applies to our institutions. It applies to our government itself. We're going to talk with Steve West, editor of the Liberties Roundup from World News Group, um, about the free exercise of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of assembly here in the United States. Steve, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Thanks, Carmen. Glad to be with you, as always.
0: All right, so no law can be established that uh, in any way inhibits an individual's free exercise of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. And I feel like those are um, those are at the center of the conversations that we're going to have this morning. Talk with us about um, what's going on in Washington, D.C., the Two Rivers Private Charter School in Washington, D.C., and the construction of a planned parenthood abortion clinic right next door.
1: Absolutely, yeah. This is a case that's gone on for about seven years. There were some pro-lifers who were demonstrating outside a a planned Planned Parenthood facility. It was under construction, and it happened to be across the alley from a uh, a charter school there in Washington, D.C., and they were protesting, uh, and the charter school actually brought the lawsuit against the demonstrators, claiming that the demonstrators were disrupting the school's operation. And there's a lot of dispute about what kind of signs they held and what they were saying but the the court uh the lower court basically sided with the school and prohibited the demonstrators from being out there but an appeals court uh, last week actually uh overruled that decision and said that it was a matter of you know free speech that they were able to be uh, outside the school and protesting like anybody should be able to and so they upheld the right of the protesters which is a good a very good decision, and they also sound that they said the school would not have succeeded on the merits of its claim that the protests disrupted school operations and threatened funding and one of the things the school was saying was actually that the children were negatively impacted uh, by having to see these signs about uh, uh, the about the, uh, the uh, abortions so that was that was what that case was about
0: I think maybe the larger conversation Steve for Um, for Christians, I mean, there are things that you can't build right next door to a school or within 100 feet. There are people who aren't allowed to live within a a certain distance of of a school. Um, I mean, part of the conversation that I think that we could be having in our communities that we could be taking um, is like, is it even appropriate for these kinds of facilities to be adjacent to um, middle schools and high schools or elementary schools for that matter? Like, I mean, I, can't we can't we work at a different level as Christians in our community to, you know, to see that these things don't have this kind of proximity? I mean, you shouldn't be able to go on your like, you know, free lunch hour from high school and go get an abortion like it shouldn't be walking distance. I mean, that's my personal opinion.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, there's all, all kinds of other things through zoning prohibitions that you wouldn't put next to a school. You wouldn't have a strip club next to a school. Uh, you wouldn't have, uh, there's a lot of things you wouldn't have there. So (laughs) Planned Parenthood facility, I don't see why you couldn't prohibit that as well.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, just in terms of your public advocacy out there in your own community, these are conversations we want to encourage you to be having. We want you to have open eyes and be looking around and um, thinking about where your faith can be pressed into. Um, the life of your community. Let's talk, um, Steve, about a religious, uh, big religious liberty win at the Supreme Court. We touched on this earlier in the week, but I'd love to hear um, what, you know, what you have to add to the conversation about the Supreme Court ruling in a case out of Maine.
1: Yeah, this uh, case that happened earlier uh, this week, uh, really, really important case. It follows a line of cases that have really supported uh, dis- supported the court that's a court supporting uh, religious liberty uh it's basically saying that um anytime the government gives out a benefit a government gives out a benefit to the public it can't discriminate in providing that benefit based on religion you know so in maine maine's an interesting place uh for public schooling because about a half of the state there are no public schools because it's such a rural state and so in those areas what the state does it says we'll provide tuition assistance so that you can send your child to a private school of your choice. Uh, only only thing is, they said you can't send them to a sectarian private school, that is a religious school. And the Supreme Court struck down that provision uh, Wednesday and said, if you're going to provide this kind of a benefit, you don't have to provide it, but if you're going to provide a benefit to parents in this way, then you have to provide it even-handedly. You you can't prohibit them from using it at a religious school. So that's a big win uh, for uh, religious liberty.
0: All right, friends, if you're listening right now, let me ask you this question. If you were put on trial, you actually had to take the stand. Someone um, was trying to either prove or disprove that you are a person of sincerely held religious beliefs. Would there be enough evidence to prove your religiosity? That is the question um, for Yeshiva University. It is a Jewish school, and um, yeah, they can't, they can't prove in court at least to this point, um, that they're Jewish enough to be protected by the First Amendment. That's up next. You're on mornings with Carmen. <laughs> Talking with Steve West from World News Group. Uh, he puts together something called the Liberties Roundup. You can find it at World News Group, org. So, a judge has determined that Yeshiva University isn't actually Jewish enough to use its Jewishness as a reason to bar an LGBT club on campus. This story, I think, comes down to whether or not an institution is religious in name only or religious in mission and actual practice. Um, How do you see it, Steve?
1: Yeah, it actually did come down to that. I mean, the the judge here is a state court judge uh, in New York City said that um, it just the court just went to the the charter for the school and it says this is a school that's here for exclusively educational purposes. And the court didn't go any farther than that. Didn't actually look to what the school actually did every day uh, in terms of its uh, mission and the mission of the school is clearly religious. I mean, these these students' um, religion is integrated into everything they do, like, like at many Christian universities. And uh, so there's, there's male students on campus who study the—expected to study the Torah between one and six hours a day. That sounds pretty religious. And here the judge was focused on, well, you know, they don't actually come to school to go to religious worship. They come to school just to get an education. I think some of what is operative here is uh, if if it's not hostility to a religion, it's just sort of an ignorance of what religion really means, that it's really vital to a person's life and it's integrated into everything that they do, which it should be. It should be integrated into their worldview and, and everything that happens. And so for a university, that's certainly the case. You know, if, if it's a truly a religious university, it's integrated into everything. And that's true at Yeshiva. The issue came up here because there was a club, an LBGT, Club that wanted to meet on campus, and the basically the city used its anti discrimination law to to argue that the, the school had to recognize this club, had to allow them to meet on campus, even though that club is not consistent with the school's mission.
0: I think that the the question about whether or not religion is you know some sort of set of protected uh, places and practices and people. Or whether or not um, the First Amendment protects the full freedom of religious expression everywhere all the time. It's my worldview. It's the atmosphere. It's the water I swim in. It's the air I breathe. Um, That that is, I think, the confusion um, at the at the culture level here. Um, Would you say would you say you see that or am I uh, overstating things?
1: No, you're you're exactly right. This shows up in other contexts. You know, there was a case at Gordon College, a Christian college in Massachusetts, where uh, there was a professor there who was not able to get tenure, and she argued that it was because of her support for the LGBTQ community. And the court there ultimately uh, said that, look, you know, um, it it didn't really buy the argument that uh, the school was making that, you know, religion had to do with every aspect of life. And every part of the educational experience. And so I think there's that 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 wanting to limit religion to you know what goes on in the church is some practice um you know worship uh the sacraments something like that prayer uh limited to those things and not not recognize the fact that it's really integrated into life because of that of course uh creates a lot of different issues uh where that ha- runs counter to some of the things that are approved of in culture.
0: So, um this is a a synagogue related university, um established in 1886. And I think part of what I wonder, Steve, when I read stories like this, um is, you know, like what was the what was the environment for Jewish people in New York City in 1886 when they made the decision to exclusively say that the purpose for their school um, was going to be educational. Like, there's a part of me that wonders if they, they chose to use expressly educational language in their charter because at the time they would have been discriminated against if they had tried to make it an expressly religious institution. Do you see the challenge? Like, because the way that discrimination sort of happens at different points in time, even in the same nation. Like, people make decisions, institutional decisions, about what they put in a charter um, based on the day in which they live, not trying to project, I mean, in this case, what, 140 years forward.
1: Well, that's right. And, you know, I don't know that the charter may have changed over the years. And the charter may have been also constructed, um, you know, written that way uh, because uh, of some, you know, Federal law that required you know the school to be you know to say that it had a primarily educational purpose. I don't know the answer to that, uh, but the court certainly didn't look beyond that, and I think it should have because you know the Supreme Court has counseled that you know really what matters is um, like for example when they look at employment situations and whether or not a uh, a school has autonomy in terms of making employment decisions, they say, is this person serving a vital religious function? And they don't look at just the label that's applied to the person's job. You know, if they're, if they're actually a minister or not, they look at actually what that employee does. So that kind of applies here. And the court really just dismissed that argument, I'm told, and d- didn't even consider it that, you know, you should look at the actual function, what is actually happening in the school. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Okay, because you're my only attorney on the show today, um, I'm just going to I'm just going to tee this up. Apparently, the Ohio State University has legally formalized a trademark on the word "the." It's the most commonly used word in the English language, and it is now a trademark officially owned by the Ohio State University. The word "the." Does that seem like um, an overreach? And can I use the word thee without giving a nod to the Buckeyes?
1: <laughs> That's an interesting issue, and I haven't actually looked at that. Obviously, it doesn't deal with religious liberty. But, you know, uh, it, it, I suspect that it's it's in relationship to the name of the university that is using the words thee. So it's trademarked in that respect. And uh, we, may, we may be making too much of it if we say it's just trademarking the word thee but I'd have to look more into that, Carmen.
0: Well, I am going to continue to refer to Jesus as the Lord and Savior, um, trademarked or not. Deal? I think you should. It's a deal. Hey, as always, um, thank you so much. Hey, there's a lot more at the Liberties Roundup and a whole lot more at World News Group, World Magazine, WNG.org. Check out the story out of Salt Lake City, um, uh, the uh, Cooper Hills High School. That's a A really interesting story as well, so don't miss that one. Steve, as always, thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Carmen.
0: Absolutely. We're going to take a moment for Max Lucado. So Jesus was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? And Jesus answered with the Shema, which is from the book of Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. So one way to think about that is with all of your affections, all of your thoughts, and all of your deeds, all that you are and all that you have, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And then he added, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'll note here that there's nothing left out. That is comprehensive. Jesus describes a life pleasing to God as comprehensive, fully integrated, all-encompassing, all-consuming, no part reserved for the self or selfishness. We tend to live as if um, we could have a spiritual life, like, you know, one slice of a pie, one slice of a loaf of bread in the bread box, Um, Like we could have a spiritual life and a social life and a work life and a family life, a home life, a fun life, an intellectual life, as if those are not fully integrated and each one fully under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Add to all of that that people are now living an online life. So let me ask you, is your online life? line life, distinctively Christian? I I mean, I think that historically we would have asked, hey, is your work life distinctively Christian? You know, do you, you are you a Christian all times and in all places? Like, right? Are you pursuing Christ and pursuing others in the name of Christ in every environment, in every relationship? And it's all encompassing. It's fully integrated. Or, you know, is, is, is your Jesus life, your spiritual life, like a slice of a pie? Are we representing Christ well in every part of life, including, including online? Chris Martin is going to join us next with three ways we can live humbly online. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Chris Martin is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. He's the author of the Terms of Service newsletter and a book by the same title. He um, he operates, you know, like at the intersection of social media and faith and the effects of social media and the social Internet on those of us who are Christians seeking to live out our faith in ways that honor Jesus. Chris, welcome back.
2: Hey, Carmen. It's good to be back.
0: So I'm uh, looking here at an excerpt from your book, Terms of Service. Um, also recently posted in your terms of service newsletter, three ways to live humbly online. Let's just talk about, um, let's start with the uh, misunderstandings related to um, humility.
2: Yeah, I think when people think of humility, um, they often think of self-hatred. Like, if I'm going to be humble, I have to think I'm awful, an awful person. Um, and I, I guess like, there's a nugget of truth in there. Like you have to think you're not the most amazing person in the world. I guess that's maybe like the first step toward humility, but humility is not all about self-flagellation. Humility is not about self-hatred. There's a great quote that's um, uh, often misattributed to C.S. Lewis. That's actually, I believe originally from Rick Warren in his book, purpose-driven life, where he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself It's thinking of yourself less. And when I was in high school, my student pastor taught us that humility is understanding who you are in light of who God is. And that's the sort of definition or sort of turn of phrase that I've always used to remember humility, that humility is understanding who you are in light of who God is. Because it's not about – when we understand humility that way, humility is not about who we aren't. Or what we aren't or how awful we are Um, but humility is more about having a right understanding of who we are what we're like what what our inadequacies are uh, how we're gifted even but always in relation to the God we image Um, and I think humility really is just a right understanding of the self in light of our relationship with the Lord And I think when we understand humility like that a little bit better than just humility being self-hatred or something like that, um, I think we can start to – you have to understand – you have to have a right understanding of humility, I think, before you can really even start down the path of trying to become a more humble person as a process of sanctification. Of course, not not to earn God's favor. We have that in Jesus alone. But – once we find ourselves at a place of faith and where we're following Jesus and we want to grow in our in our faith and grow in our christ' likeness um I think if we want to be more humble uh we should we should probably have a right understanding of what that is before we even get going
0: so um as a person seeking to bear positive public witness to who Christ is in his reality like, right as a person who understands what you mean when you say, you know, I'm going to image God versus I'm going to imagine God and then I'm going to project into the world that imaginary version, right? The thing that I imagine God to be. So we are seeking to genuinely image God, like reflect God, mirror who God is in the world. And we and we do that or we must do that online today. There is a responsibility of the Christian Online, in the midst of the social internet, that is unique and different. And so, you lay out some of the things that Mark should, Mark must, Mark our online engagement. Can you um, can you tell us what those are?
2: Yeah, and let me say first, uh, it's really hard. I mean, it's hard to be humble. Period. Um, because <laughs> but it's hard to be humble <laughs> online. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to be humble. Period. Because we're sinful and and we even even if we find ourselves filled with the Holy Spirit, we're still prone to sin and brokenness and uh, but being humble online is even harder um, because we lack that face to face interaction it's easier to try to explain away our mistakes or explain away our pride or hide our pride from even ourselves and so being humble on online is even harder I think than being humble like in a face to face personal relationship. And so how, how do we be humble online? And I say this – look, I write this as somebody who understands uh, how the internet works and what it means to be humble. I do not write this as somebody who has perfected this by any means, so be aware of this. Um, but I, I think the first thing we should do is be willing to admit when we're wrong. Uh, there's a running joke among those who have worked in social media for any period of time, myself included – uh, that no one has ever been convinced to change their mind because of a social media argument. You know, their uh, Facebook comment sections or or other social media, Twitter, you know, Twitter back and forths are, you know, are everywhere. And, and we all kind of roll our eyes at them at this point in some regard if we're not participating in them. But I think it's kind of funny to think about, like, has anyone ever been really convinced by social media arguments? And I'm sure there have been. Don't, don't hear me saying I have empirical evidence to sur- to show that nobody ever has been. But it often seems like people engage in social media arguments more to um, make themselves feel more right than to win minds over to their side. Um, and so I think we should admit that – we should be willing to admit that we're wrong uh, if we are in some sort of social media dispute or if we – if we post something insensitive or offensive to other people, we should apologize for that. We should repent of that. Um, and, and so pride is difficult to shake, but I think it, it, starts with recognizing who we are in light of who God is and that we aren't going to be perfect and we should just acknowledge it when we aren't. Um, secondly, I think we should assume the best of others. This is probably the hardest one of these three steps for me. Um, I, I, I understand why it's hard to assume the best of others, especially online. I spent so many years running social media for a large Christian organization, and I saw the worst of Christians online. We would regularly have Christians cussing us out on social media for decisions that our company made or people that our company published or things like that. And it, it I started to get a frankly, very negative view of Christians broadly because of some super negative interactions I was having with Christians on social media. And so it's really hard to assume the best of others, especially strangers on social media when it looks like maybe they're not being humble or they're being combative or something like that. Uh, But I think – if. We should assume the best that's not only biblical, I think, um, but I think it's just logical if we're going to have any hope of being humble and and spreading humility through our interactions with people online. And third and finally, I think we should forgive others when they wrong us. Plenty of wrong happens, not only offline, obviously, but on the Internet. It's easy to get into fights with people, even friends, but especially strangers um, to get in those Facebook comment section fights or those Twitter disputes or whatever else. Um, and it's easy to not forgive people when you don't know them. You know, it's, it's easier to in some sense, not always, but it's easier to forgive somebody, you know, and who's maybe offended you to your face, because then you can actually engage with them face to face and and have this personal interaction. And perhaps you're actually going to be engaging with them on a regular basis. So forgiveness is almost more of a practical necessity. Whereas if somebody like offends you online in the comment section of a local news post or something like that and they call you some name, you may never forgive that person because you will never see them again. You will never interact with them in real life. Uh, You'll never have to forgive them in a practical sense because it won't hinder a relationship that you have with them because you have no relationship with them. Uh, but I do think that it's still important for us to forgive a stranger on the internet who offends us, uh, because that person still hurt us. That hurt is still real, and I th- I think we're still called to forgive even if we have no practical you know necessity to do so because it's going to hinder some sort of offline relationship. And I just think I think forgiveness is desperately needed in the world of of social media. Conflict thrives online. Conflict is engaging, and that would. S- that which gets the most engagement continues to perpetuate. So conflict is everywhere, and it will always be on the internet. But forgiveness is really sort of the antithesis of of conflict. It's sort of the antidote to conflict. If you forgive someone, the conflict can continue. And so in 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 a in a direct sense, of course, conflict generally can continue. But but I think anyway, those are those are just a few thoughts I've had that I, I put in the book, and I thought would be a helpful uh, section to put on the newsletter of of how we can try to live more humbly online when it's increasingly, in my view, difficult to do so.
0: Do you feel like, Chris, that there are people who have like an online life, an online persona, um, and it is different than, it's somehow distinct from um, the person that you know, I'm not asking you to identify an individual here. I'm just saying like, uh, like, That their online persona, their online presence, their, quote, online life is different than, distinct from, recognizably so, their, quote, unquote, Christian or spiritual life. Because I think that the idea that we would have an online life that would be distinct is a problem for Christians.
2: Yes, I think that happens. And yes, I agree with you that it's a problem. And here's what I've often said, because some folks would be like, well, what I do online doesn't really matter. Like, it's not real life. Like, it's Mm. not, you know, it's not real life. Um and I have a I've written something. They on clearly this have not that,
0: read your book.
2: Yeah, and, and I've written I've written on the newsletter before that online life is the internet is real life, and mm-hmm. I would say that who someone is online is who they truly are, and who they are offline is who they're uh, purporting themselves to be. Um, and uh, and perhaps they're hiding their true selves behind, uh, you know, the social sort of norms that they're having to conform to. Um, and so I would say. Like, if you, I've talked to Carmen. I can't tell you the number of pastors I've spoken to. I'm writing a second book on social media specifically for like pastors and church leaders and people like that. I can't tell you the number of pastors I've spoken to who have basically said to me, man, Jim was such a great church member and he's such a nice guy, shows up to all the events, you know. But, man, I've seen him on Facebook, you know cussing people out and and jumping on people and causing all kinds of a ruckus. And that just doesn't seem like Jim to me. And I'm like, man, pastor, I hate to tell you, but like, that's the real Jim. Uh, like that's, that's the Jim uh, who's, who's not showing up to your church. He, he's, he's putting on a face to show up to church on Sunday morning and, and small group on Wednesday night and who he is on Facebook. You see him causing a ruckus. That's probably who he actually is. Uh, and so I, I can't, I mean, I've talked to so many pastors who have had this sort of realization that, the people in my church are being formed by the internet more than they're being formed by what's going on in our church and who they are online is very different from who they are when they're here.
0: Mm. I think that's a critical conversation. So thank you for, um, uh, for for having that conversation with us as well. We're talking with Chris Martin. I'm going to ask him a random question when we come back, but I'm going to tell him now what that random question is going to be. And it's in relationship to the use of hashtags, so this is a, a, a news um related hook here um because there is a a person who is being criticized um for the use of a hashtag in relationship to a tweet. Um and she used a hashtag, I think, because she wanted to enter into the conversation with the people who were following that hashtag. And she has clearly said that she's not a supporter of the Sort of the worldview behind the hashtag. And I, and I like, I don't even really want to say it, but like, she used the hashtag QAnon at one point back in her, you know, in, in engagement, trying to engage people who were following that hashtag. Well, now she's being asked to defend why she believes in QAnon. And she's having a hard time articulating, like, look, I don't believe in it. I wanted to engage with people who were following the hashtag. And so I used the hashtag in a tweet. Can you talk a little, can you talk us through like a little bit of like, when when we are supposed to and when we should not use a hashtag? Can sure. you give us a little counsel on that when we come back? All right, so hashtags up next with Chris Martin. We'll be right back.
1: Justly, mercy, walk
0: with you God. All right, we're talking with Chris Martin. You can find him at his Terms of Service newsletter. Um, his book is Terms of Service. He talks about the power of the social internet. He talks about our engagement online. Um, so, Chris, hashtags: when to use, when not to use, and how to explain why I use the ones I use.
2: Man, um, I, I don't. First of have all, for people, for strong... people
0: listening, for people who are listening who don't even know what a hashtag is, let's start there.
2: Oh, yeah, it's the pound sign. So if you don't know what a hashtag is, you definitely know what a pound sign is. Um, so it's what you use. So to explain hashtags functionally, hashtags were the first social media platform that hashtags were introduced on in a in a broad sense was Twitter. Um, and it was used as a means of. Kind of creating a common thread of di- of discussion around a particular topic. So on Twitter, functionally, the reason a hashtag was created was, let's say you were tweeting about uh, the Super Bowl, and you you tweeted, "Man, look at the look at the Los Angeles Rams score that touchdown." Hashtag Super Bowl, all one word, no spaces. Then you could tap on or click on that Super Bowl hashtag and see everyone talking about the Super Bowl and who appended that hashtag to their tweet. Um, So you could kind of join a chat room of sort. I mean, it's not a chat room, but you could join a, a room where everyone's talking about the same thing. It was really an ingenious invention on the part of Twitter to create sort of uh, sections of their giant worldwide platform where people could be sure that they're talking with others about the same topic or event or things like that. And in my view, a platform like Twitter is at its best during something like the Super Bowl when it feels like everyone is doing the same thing or watching the same thing and appending that hashtag to their tweets and it just feels like you're watching the Super Bowl with millions of your yeah, it's the trend, social – it's
0: actually what makes the platform social.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating aspect of that. Um, now, I uh, – it's weird having worked in social media for so long and now written two books on social media. I don't have strong feelings about hashtags at all. I virtually never use them. I used to use them sort of like when it was cool to use them ironically or something. Uh, but I never use them. Like – uh, I I can't think of a time – I cannot think of a single time when I've used the hashtag and then been like, oh, I want to go see what other people are saying in this hashtag. I've just never done it. I think it's a cool feature. I just don't – I – I engage I only want to engage with people I really know on social media not a stranger who's also tweeting about the same subject as I am usually. Um so sometimes I know that I've like searched a hashtag on Twitter like oh what are people talking about with the new Apple iPhone launch event that's going on right now and I search that hashtag or something but like I I don't I don't use them super broadly. Now on, there are, it's a whole other discussion like on Instagram they're used for all kinds of other things. Similarly, I mean it's, it's a similar concept, but it's also an important way to, like, to get your Instagram account discovered if you're trying to kind of broaden your audience. On Facebook, they're virtually useless. I still don't understand why people use them on Facebook. Facebook created the – like created the function that is supposed to be similar to Twitter, but I, I cannot t- – I've never talked to anyone who's been like, oh yeah, I clicked on that Facebook hashtag and then followed everybody who was talking about that subject. I've just never heard of anybody actually using it. Um, so back to your, your, uh, point or your, your anecdote before the break. Um, so I, I don't know that person. I don't know this, the particulars of the situation that you're talking about. Um, but the per, I understand the logic that this woman, I think you said is using of like, I want, I just wanted to engage with the topic of QAnon. I'm not a, I'm not a supporter of QAnon. Um, yeah, you are not you don't support something just because you put a hashtag in it. You're trying to join a discussion about a topic. Um, and so anybody who would grill this woman about putting QAnon in her tweet, I mean, unless the tweet was somehow endorsing QAnon, simply putting that hashtag in a tweet is not expressing endorsement so much as wanting to get your tweet in in the orbit of that discussion now we could talk for a while about the wisdom or merits of hashtagging a tweet QAnon because you're going to attract all kinds of um Mm -hmm. rabble rousers with that kind of thing like I even if I was talking about QAnon I would definitely not hashtag a QAnon uh because I value my sanity but like I, I wouldn't um, I would not grill somebody who puts a hashtag of some kind in their tweet that are you are you supporting that thing because you hashtag it. that's not that's not how social media works and that's not how hashtags work.
0: Well, and if they then tell you, no, I don't support it. It's not my thing you don't continue to grill them, well, then why did you use the hashtag? I mean, my answer would be because I'm an idiot, but I don't think she could say <laughs> yeah, that sure. in, in the environment where she was speaking. All right. Um. So many other things that we could, uh, that we could talk about today. Um. I know that it's, it's rude to ask you to briefly talk about something that you um, have had expansive conversations about, but can you talk about the internet Google left behind? Because this is, um this is in your newsletter and I really appreciated it.
2: Yeah, there's a really great article by Charlie Warzel, who writes for The Atlantic um, in a newsletter called Galaxy Brain. And he writes just about social internet culture and, and various aspects of social media or the internet. And he wrote a really great article in The Atlantic this week called The Internet Google Left Behind. And I'd encourage anybody who's listening to go read it. And he just talks about like, he he's wrestling with the good and bad of Google. Um, is it is Google a net positive or a net negative for us? Obviously, there, are, there. Google has reported like eight point five billion Google searches a day, or something like that. Yeah, eight point five billion Google searches per day. Um, that's up from five point four just two years ago, and so Google searches are exponentially growing every day. Um, you know, there are more Google searches per day than people in the world, <laughs> or so, and so it's it's kind of crazy, but. Google continually points people back to itself. You know, it, it's um, – Google used to point you to where to find the answer on the internet and more and more Google is trying to be the – trying to be where you find the answer so that you never – you don't search in Google and then go somewhere else. You search in Google and just stay in your Google search and they have the answer for you right there, which is, of course, convenient. But is that good? Like is that is that best? Is convenience – For us, necessarily the best for us. I mean, that's a huge question for the internet generally. Um, But when it comes to Google search, like, is it is it good that Google is sort of monopolizing this and pointing us continually to itself? Or or should we? hope that they would be a little bit more equitable and maybe float some other options to the top of our Google search results and not point people back to Google tools all the time? I think it's a really interesting question. And I think the the topic of sort of internet company monopolies is a super important one. That is one that we should continue to wrestle with over the coming years. But I thought it was a great article, the internet Google left behind. And I, if you just Google that, ha, isn't that funny? If you just Google that, You should be able to hopefully find that article or or go to TheAtlantic.com and you should be able to find it.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation and very, very helpful. Um, And just a reminder that when I Google something and when Chris Martin Googles something, we do get different returns, which is also just an interesting, interesting, super interesting aspect of the way it all works. Um, And a reminder that I am the product. I never, I, you have me so mindful of that. Anytime I engage online, particularly on some free platform, I'm like, this is not free. I am the product. And you have yep. made me mindful of that. And I really appreciate it. As always, Chris, thank you so much.
2: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, that's Chris Martin. You can find him and his Terms of Service newsletter online. His book, Terms of Service, absolutely worth the read. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. And we'll be right back. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We're going to visit with Adam Holtz, and then we're going to do some uh, Friday leftovers. You and I have conversations about things that have been happening in the world that we haven't gotten an opportunity to talk about, a question raised by a listener about how do I deal with books and teaching resources of a fallen pastor, leader, or teacher, all that up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.